9110, that's the time. Ndawoyami by Zama Jobe. Whatever happened to Zama Jobe? I mean, I remember this album when it came out. It was a smashing hit and smashing success. And she just seemed to disappear off the face of the earth. If you're sitting next to her, please send her my regards and say, well, we are looking for more from her. I don't imagine somebody's voice deteriorates to such a point. It would not be of the kind that we would still listen to and buy and support her music. Thank you so much to Patrick Bond, immediate past speaker or guest on The Viewpoint. And before him, we had Professor or Dr. I beg your pardon, Luis Alberto Torres Cruz talking to us about the fossil fuel question predicated by what's happening in Europe, Russia, Ukraine, and the tailings dam collapse in Yachtesfontein, respectively. We move the conversation on now, of course, being the new hour. On a Monday, we have a conversation on health on Monday, and the guest of this evening is Dr. Jenny Kutsia, Principal Investigator in the Perinatal HIV Research Unit at the University of the Witwatersrand. Consortium of researchers spread across six institutions has published a new analysis of data obtained from the first national survey of female sex workers in South Africa, accessible through sex worker programs. The analysis aims to understand not just what proportion of surveyed respondents were living with HIV at the time of sampling, but also to shed light on the rate of occurrences of new HIV infections in the population. The results indicate that street-based female sex workers in South Africa have extraordinarily high HIV incidence, emphasizing the need to sustain and strengthen efforts to mitigate risks and provide adequate care. Dr. Jenny Kutsi is on the line. Jenny, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Just on that last point, what would be a, a strengthened effort and a sustainable effort to mitigate and provide adequate care? What are the interventions that are required? Good evening, welcome to your listeners. So in terms of, of an effort that is required, I think it's certainly important to acknowledge the efforts that have been made um, in the country for a number of years now. Since about 2013, we've had a national sex worker program um, that really has looked at, at strengthening around, in particular, HIV testing and access to treatment, as well as pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, you know, condom usage, and various other educational information, safe spaces, um, and other services needed by sex workers. But one of the biggest areas that is, that is hugely faulted in the country is around legislative frameworks that currently criminalise the buying and selling of sex. Um, and I think that any intervention that we want to implement within the country that's going to see a sustained and ongoing success is really going to need to, to include a massive review of legislative frameworks that moves beyond uh, ideological or religious mm-hmm. issues around mm-hmm. sex um, and then he starts to address the fact that people are going to continue to buy and sell sex um, globally. You know, it's the oldest profession in the world. And that's precisely the point, isn't it? I mean, whatever the legislative regime is or the legal regime is, it's never going to change people's behaviours. The best response a government could potentially, I argue, have is to try and engage the conversation from a health perspective 
to try and mitigate the risks that ultimately fall back on the government and become a cost factor in the healthcare and elsewhere just further down the line. So it's effectively it has the effect of kicking the can down the road. What stands in the way, as many have called sex work, is work. Never mind that it's sex, it's still work. That it be regulated and made legal so that you could have these safeguards and the necessary protections of sex workers and the extended community by necessary implication. So I think the, the big thing standing in the way is really um, the political will to to make changes. Um, you know, we've, we've had various sort of um, politicians at different times make statements around the means to, to criminalise and around moves towards decriminalisation or, or creating legislative frameworks that allow for legalisation in various different ways. Um, but it really hasn't been followed up with, with the world's good. I think it's a massive political hot potato that at times gets rolled out just prior to electioneering, or sort of just prior to election. Um, sorry, let me just close the door. I've got And, um, and it's never followed through with actual changes to, to our frameworks. And that's hugely, hugely problematic. So I think that's sort of the first thing. I think the second thing is really that as a society, we are very conservative in our views of sex and sexuality. And despite the fact that we are sitting in the midst of an HIV epidemic that, that is not yet under control, um, we are reticent to actually have open conversations about sex, to acknowledge our sexuality, and to acknowledge the fact that, that men or women are going to have sex for pleasure and for the sake of sex, um, which means that there is always going to be a market for it. And then I think the last thing is really around the structural factors around poverty and education. That as long as there is, um, you know, poverty is an issue within the country or globally, um, and we have very, very poor levels of education, we are going to see that men and women are going to need to resort to alternative ways in order to, to earn an income. Um, and this is one of those ways. A consortium of researchers spread across six institutions, UCT, WITS, African Potential Consulting, Stellenbosch University, South African Medical Research Council, and the National Institute of Communicable Diseases has published a new analysis of data obtained from the first national survey of female sex workers in South Africa accessible through sex worker programs. As you are listening to this conversation, I'm minded to ask an open-ended question to you at home. Your thoughts on sex work and sex workers in South Africa. What are your perspectives? We've already had a conversation, or in part anyway, as to making this legal so that you can increase the protections. Should we still have an ideological ban, if you like, on a trade which certainly is going nowhere anytime soon? The conversation I'm having is with Dr. Jenny Kutsi, a principal investigator in the perinatal HIV research unit at the University of Witwatersrand. After the break, I'm hopefully taking lots of calls, engaging lots of messages, both written and voice, in this conversation. Let's take a very short break just to get everybody on. Sex work, anything you want to talk about in that regard, Jenny Kutsia returns. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. Yeah, we are back. The Viewpoint, Dr. Jenny is back. No more dishes. I heard the story there from the producers, Jenny. Let's talk about the research. Coming together as these bright minds in South Africa, 
clearly the fact that this research would be happening, National Institute of Communicable Diseases, South African Medical Research Council, just looking at the parties involved and the institutions they represent, it is moving the needle forward at this conversation because at least now the necessary facts are available to the stakeholders, critical political stakeholders anyway, to make the decisions that will be consistent with the mitigation of ultimately HIV and AIDS and its spread. It's still a challenge. It's just not spoken as much now as it might have been 20 years ago, given the strides. But it is still something that a nation should be seized with, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I had a very interesting conversation just to break momentarily away from from sex work with a gynecologist um, yesterday who works um, in a prominent hospital in, in the northern suburbs of Johannesburg. Mm. And he was just saying how clearly it's become such a forgotten issue um, that for many years he hasn't, he hasn't really seen HIV-positive young people and that he's currently now having quite an influx of HIV-infected um, young women from affluent um, families, affluent suburbs. And I think that really, to me, just epitomizes some of the issues that we see around the epidemic, is that I think funders have become tired of funding it. Um, you know, organizations have become tired of running programs with, the, with their, their um, staff, and we're seeing within sexual programs that not only has there been, um, and obviously it has to do with, with massive kind of geopolitical issues that there's been a reduction in funding, um, but also that there needs to really be renewed energy into how we approach the HIV epidemic. And we need to just consider the impact that, that having feminized the epidemic, and by that I mean that our approach has been very much to, to make women quite responsible for the epidemic because we see so much HIV in women, because they're so much more vulnerable to HIV. Um, and what's happened is that we've often left other possibly vulnerable or um, other key or priority populations, such as male class sex workers, behind in this journey, um, which is a massive pity. And it, and it means that really we now are in a position where we just have to redouble our efforts. Um, and that's not to say that what we've done hasn't worked. In fact, as part of this research, not only did we look at, um, obviously, HIV incidents, so that is in the number of, of new infections, but we looked at, at prevalence, we looked at violence exposure, um, at mental health, and we looked at access to care. And what we found was that, in fact, we have a really great success story in these programs. What we're seeing is that in terms of the number of people who know their status and the number of people um, that notice that have been on treatment and of those that are virally suppressed, we are almost at the point in these programs of achieving the UN 95, 95, 95. So that means that we want 95% of people to know their status, of those 95% should be on treatment, and of those 95% should be virally suppressed. And in sex work programs, we have 92% who know their status, 85% on treatment, and the area that we're falling behind slightly is 71% being virally suppressed. Now, in the general population, what we see is that about 50% of people who are offered treatment only actually initiate and take up this offer of treatment. So secret programs are actually really successful um, in terms of getting people onto treatment and getting them virally suppressed. Two things. The... Mm. The, the, the value of advocacy, more especially against the fact that the money perhaps that we might have been, what's the word, 
Um, the, the money that we might have received earlier on, given the fact that it was still a nascent factor in global health, that is HIV and AIDS, of the late 90s, early 2000s, is not nearly of the proportions now. It has dropped, as you've made mention of. At a fundamental level, precisely to deal with these statistics, which we are falling behind on, of course, if you are always meeting your targets, it means they're possibly too low. So it's good to be ambitious, 95, 95, 95. But a way to get to 95, 95, 95 would just for the conversation to happen. So national television should be readily um, flooded, open, close quote, with the kind of information just to keep us health conscious about HIV and AIDS and how easily it is transmitted, more especially at a time of indulgence and pleasure. There should be publications from time to time, even targeting schools, particularly the sexually active youth as they engage their bodies and sort of their hormones, high school kids. And one doesn't get the sense that these advocacy programs are as entrenched or as commonplace now as they might have been. Yes, funds are an important factor in relation to that. But building these sorts of things into the curriculum, for instance, can go a long way in addressing that. You've got a, a, a what is a such subject, life orientation. It is there. Soul City, that telenovela series or whatever it was, should never have left our screens precisely because it was engaging those critical questions, albeit through entertainment. Might our strides then not have somewhat suffered in the result because of the lack of concrete concrete and concretized advocacy program that allows us at least to hang on with the kinds of numbers we really should be and not making regressive moves but making progressive steps more especially when one i mean this is a long question i'm just going on a soliloquy here but our (laughs) arv program is one of the best in the world which is a good thing Mm. but that on its own is not going to cure us it's not going to make the necessary inroads as an intervention it's a clinical intervention and ideally what you want is a non-clinical intervention because the clinical intervention almost suggests it's come too late yes so I think that you've really hit the nail on the head for me. Um, and that is that all too often um, our, our um, interventions come at the tail end of the problem. And if we think of, of HIV risk um, on a continuum that's kind of constantly growing and adding across your lifetime, what we start to see is that we really start to intervene just before you become infected or you become infected. Like, oh dear, too late. Here's your, here's, here's your ART. Mm. Um, or, you know, but we're not actually considering a person as a whole, the complexity of their lives, and we're not considering the kind of psychosocial interventions that need to be taking, that need to be taking place. And again, I just want to come back to that I've, I often wonder about how we speak to our children about sex and about sexuality. Taboo, and rather right? than saying to completely, and rather than saying to a child, if you have sex, you will fall pregnant and you will get HIV, which really is that those are outcomes. But are we ever saying to our children, actually sex can be pleasurable, sex can be painful. These are good things. These are bad things. These are how to look after yourself. These are conversations you want to be having. Um, and it's not easy, and I say this as a mother of a daughter and a mother of a son. You know, so, so it's not, these are not easy conversations that I'm suggesting people have, but I think that they're incredibly important conversations. And, and expecting schools to have them without providing the skill set to parents, and whether that's or caregivers, so that whether it's parents or grandparents or aunties that someone someone's living with as a primary caregiver, um, is almost an exercise in futility. It needs to be a massive drive 
to really help society come to terms with how we need to be thinking about sexuality and how we need to be talking about it. Um, and one of the things that's come out for us recently that, that also speaks to this is we've, we've been running one of the only programs through the Perinatal HIV Research Unit mm. um, that looks at male clients and sex workers. Um, and this work's not been done before. And for us, what was incredibly striking was we get to the start of, of a violent section. So there were many sections to this question, and I don't want to frame these men as being purely violent. I just want to speak briefly about the concept of this. Mm. Getting to the start of a questionnaire and saying, I'm now going to ask you some questions about violence. And the men would say, but I'm not violent. And we say, okay, cool, cool. We're just going to ask you these questions. And we'd get about 10, 15 questions in, and the guys would inevitably go, hang on, is this violence? I didn't know this was violent. Mm. Let's go back, ask me the questions again. And so it really kind of just suggests to us this, this normalized way that, that men are positioned in relation to women, that women are positioned as subordinate to men, and the role and impact that has in terms of our epidemic. Um, and then there's issues around mental health. And, you know, really, if you're struggling with mental health, and, and I'm sure you would know this, or many of your listeners would know this, but, you know, if, you, if you're challenged with depression or anxiety, your ability to remember to take your, um, your vitamins for the morning, let alone an antiretroviral. Yeah, you're, you're incapacitated. Be, yeah. So here we're leaving people in a position where we have no mental health services in the country, or very poor mental health services. And very services. stigmatized when it is accessible. Completely. Um, and we're wondering why we're in a position where you know, people are resisting access to healthcare, they're resisting engaging in, in healthy type behaviors, um, but their access to information is limited, um, as you've pointed out, and as, as we can all see. I mean, we, you know, access to the internet is a luxury. Um, it's, it's not something that everyone has. I mean, we should have, in every taxi in this country, we should have um, free Wi-Fi, and within that we should have educational programs that are pushed onto that, that allow kids to get access to information, parents to get access to information, and the kind of health information that we really want to have out there to help reduce the burden of disease in this country. That's an interesting point. Why did you mention taxis? Because we have 15 million commuters on a daily basis. And what an easy way to get an education out there to what is likely to be a group of children and I'm not assuming all 16 million people are children, but there'll be a large proportion of school children um, traveling on, commuting on taxis. What a great way to make information available. And we've seen how COVID has pushed us into a space in many cases where information has become, become really available online and school systems have started using, and education systems have started using that. So why not put it into a place where we can... Um, we can really make this possible and we can make a massive change to people's lives um, so that they can make informed decisions. Very well. Let's take a call from Durban. Scully, Scully, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, good evening to you, Sengezo. Indeed. Um, sort of a good show and, and, and your doctor. Sengezo, my, my input is, like for the sex workers you mentioned, you know, um, they should be given cards to carry around in the trade and, and visited periodically to the hospital's clinics where it's fully stamped to say that they are, you know, clean and pure, free of any disease and so on. Uh, like the first world countries practice, I'm sure. Um, stand for correction there. Uh, but um, I'm sure I've been around, I've been a seaman. So that's what the other countries, the first world practice. Um, it's just a suggestion for South Africa. 
Thank you. A suggestion for South Africa. Thank you so much, Scully. Do you want to take a bite in response to that, Jenny? Thank you, Scully. It's really great to hear suggestions. Um, I think that it depends on the legal framework that a country takes as to whether or not um, it would be required for a sex worker to carry a, a health screening card. Um, but I do think it is one option that allows, um, you know, allows women to, to show that they've had a health test and we need to show that they've had a health test. I think we've got to be quite mindful that, you know, clients should also then um, be carrying health screening cards to show that they're healthy, particularly if they're going to um, want to have sex without a condom. So I think we, we've just got to be very, um, we've got to implement programs that are going to be um, effective, that are going to reduce discrimination um, and that are going to be fair to, to all parties engaging in the, the buying and selling of sex. The numbers that we do know, how many of those, I mean, just to break the stereotype and to engage the question of fact as opposed to ideology, men Mm. involved in the trade, sex work, how many of them would willingly come through and participate in the survey? Do we have a sense of the number of men who are sex workers? I'm trying to engage typically where there might be differences, for instance, in vulnerability, particularly vulnerability mm. to violence. What, what can we say about men in this industry? So what we can say is that it's a much smaller proportion of men that are involved in the, in, on the sex work side of, um, of the industry. And... As a factor of the way in which research operates and funders operate, it's a huge pity that we actually haven't had any, any studies that I'm very aware of that have provided effective evidence on, um, the, on you know, some of the, the issues. So we can speak to them in terms of what our programs have seen, but not in terms of, of research. Um, so we're not sure what the HIV prevalence is amongst the male sex worker population. Um, and know what their exposure to violence looks like. I would assume that it would be as high as, as it is with female sex workers, if not, if not higher, um, but also be area and context, context dependent. And then in terms of just the, the number of men, so we know that within South Africa, um, it's estimated that about 1% of the adult female population engage in sex work. It's significantly lower with men. So I think we're looking at, and I stand under correction here, I think we're looking at about 0.1% of the, of the male population engaged in sex work. But if we think, and if we contextualize that, um, that men are able to take on different informal labor type work. So men can take on jobs as, as, you know, as a truck driver, a gardener, um, you, know, you can take on um, you know, criminal, various criminal activities, um, yes, you can rob someone or hijack someone. Or, so you've got a multitude of different ways to hustle and earn money. Um, this is not you promoting criminality, surely not? No, absolutely I'm not. I'm simply stating that there are different ways for, for men to earn money where women, we find that their ability, so for a woman to become a truck driver or a minor is much harder. Um, and so for a woman to engage in the sale of sex is a much easier, and I use the term very loosely there, knowing that knowing some of the immense challenges that, that people go through who are, who are in the industry. Um, but I suspect that that's why, as well as kind of some of the issues around masculinity, you find a much higher proportion of women engaging in sex, the sale of sex, than you do men. 
Interesting thoughts. But no, I'm not promoting <laughs> Interesting thoughts, to say the least. But nonetheless, thank you so much, Dr. Jenny Kutsia, for your thoughts in relation to that. Next steps, final comment. Next steps, where do we take this research and how is it engaged? So I think the next steps are really, um, some of them are happening in terms of policy and in terms of program. Um, I think that we need to really strengthen our mental health and our violence prevention work. So not just about post-violence care, but really about preventing violence. And that's not just then in terms of the sex work sector, but also just as a whole in South Africa. We need to really be looking at protecting women, children and men, um, which a lot of our research is starting to show the vulnerability of male populations um, from violence. I think that's a huge thing. Um, In terms of legislative frameworks, I know that there is a review currently underway um, with recommendations that we are waiting to hear on. Um, But really, I would highly recommend that that the decriminalization of sex work is, is probably one of the most important factors in, in being able to create a more equitable space. Um, and then I think it's about educa- education, um, education across the board around, around sex from, from a young age up until, you know, up until older people to help them deal with speaking to, about sex to, to younger people. I think those are probably some of the most important programs that need to be happening in the country. And obviously we need efforts within the sex work sector in terms of programming, in terms of funding, and in terms of engaging men who are involved in the purchasing of sex. Very well. Let's leave it there for sure. Thank you so much, Dr. Jenny Kutsia, Principal Investigator in the Perinatal HIV Research Unit at University of Witwatersrand. Hi, good evening. I would just like your guests there to comment on the relations that or relationship between drug abuse and sex work. Because I think legalizing um, sex work might increase um, drug abuse. I would just like to have your guests' opinion on that. This is JK from the Western Cape. Thank you. Jenny, you're still on. You heard that question. Can I respond to JK? Yeah, please, please. Yeah, cool. So, JK, thank you very much for the question. It's a great one. Um, you know, there's a, there's a real misconception that sex workers are drug abusers. Um, yes, there are sex workers that do take drugs, just as there are non-sex workers who do take drugs. And, um, you know, I think once we start getting into very heavy drugs, such as heroin, and people are taking them regularly, we often just see um, a strong association between, um, you know, needing to to buy drugs, so then you, you might sell sex in order to buy your drugs to get your fix. Um, I don't believe that the legalization of drugs would make would encourage sex work. Um, I think if, if you've spent enough time in that population and with, um, with, with anyone who's using drugs, you get a very good sense that, that um, in fact, people have, you know, people have more options. They would, they would be engaging in other ways of, of earning money. Um, and I think that there are many drugs out there that do need, you know, that have potential positive side side effects and positive benefits. Yeah. Um, but that really should be considered. But I do Yeah. I think that it is a, a a misconception to assume that all sex workers take drugs. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you so much for your time. Twenty one thirty eight, folks. One question or comment from Mohale Libona in Kwakwa. We have to keep the laws against sex work intact. I say this in consideration to how much problem South Africa has in relation to sex-related illnesses like HIV and AIDS. I wonder if we won't see a rise in stats and whether this won't result in bigger bills for the Department of Health. Also, 
sex work is mainly engaged in because of economic predicaments. We need to rather have an honest engagement on how the economy affects everything. It's the reason why people are forced to engage in such, open close quote, risky work, mostly. What about our moral fiber? A question that I think might have been engaged earlier on. Final one. Good evening, Songeza. Zama from Rustenburg. I believe that if anyone wants to assist sex workers, they should help them get off the streets. Our government should invest in changing and improving the lives of these young women, men, indeed of encouraging them to continue with this work. We were created to accomplish great things. We honestly can't reduce ourselves to normalize this as a normal career. Your thoughts after the break. More, but something to do with academia. <laughs> 